Who wrote the American Constitution? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Dennis Rasmussen. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Dennis Rasmussen. Dennis is a political theorist whose research focuses primarily on the Enlightenment, the American founding, and the virtues and shortcomings of liberal democracy and market capitalism. He received his PhD from Duke University in 2005 and his BA from Michigan State University's James Madison College in 2000. And he has also held positions at Tufts University, the University of Houston, Brown University, and Bowdoin College. He's the author of more than just a couple books and... One of them, the Constitution's Penman, will serve as the foundation for our discussion today, and that one was just recently released. We encourage everyone to go check it out. Dennis, welcome back to The Curious Task. Thanks. The third time's the charm. Thanks for having me. And it's great to have you on, as always. So, uh, Dennis, as you very well know, in each episode, we ask a question or base it on a theme and go over the answers and conversation takes us. Today, our question is, who wrote the American Constitution? And before we jump into uh, this very interesting character that we'll be spending most of our time on, I did just want to ask you, what got you interested in this topic in particular? What turned you on to, I guess, this general question and then this person? Well, yeah, I, I guess the, the most striking thing is that very few people know the answer to the question you asked. It seems like it should be a pretty obvious one. Who wrote the Constitution? Right. So I opened the book this way. If you asked any American, at least, who wrote the Declaration of Independence, I mean, almost every schoolchild knows that Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence. The Constitution is, you know, just as important for us, the, the second founding document. And I would guess, I mean, I've never done this. I bet if you polled Americans with PhDs in political science, I bet fewer than half can tell you who wrote the constitution and that's a shocking fact so that's one thing well just a spoiler for those of you who who may be listening to this without having looked at the the show notes or something the answer is governor morris um i'll be saying a lot more about him today but he's this incredibly colorful interesting character and he was the one who wrote the constitution and yet nobody knows you know who he is or or uh you know anything about him so so that was the impetus for the book Right. And and before we actually talk about Mr. Morris, Governor or Gouverneur Morris, um, could, could you just list off just because, you know, some people might have their own thoughts about this as well. Like just some what are the typical prevailing, at least that you found when you've talked to people or researched this? What's the prevailing common knowledge or throwaway facts? And, you know, I don't want to say cliches, but just the sort of general throwaway knowledge that people have about who might have contributed to the Constitution. Like, for instance, I know, like James Madison is often credited, I believe, right? Like, what are the other kinds of theories that are often out there about, oh, yeah, this is how the Constitution came to be as far as who penned it? Sure. Well, so yes, you're right. The obvious answer, the, the answer, I, I kind of quiz people just out of curiosity to see how many people have known that, that, that uh, Morris wrote the, the Constitution as I was working on the book. And by far the most common answer is Madison, right? He's known as the father of the Constitution. And so people assume, well, maybe he's the one who wrote it. Other people, and this is not entirely wrong, say, well, did anyone really write it? Obviously, the, the, you know, there are dozens of delegates to the Philadelphia Convention who come up with the charter, you know, hash out the, the details over the course of the summer. And in some ways that is right, but still at the end of the summer, someone had to write it, right? They came up with a five-person committee of style. Uh, Madison was on that committee, but he didn't do the work. They just handed it over to Morris, and Morris was the one who who actually wrote it down. So some of the material, some of the, the – uh, 
kind of clauses were already set in stone, but a lot of it he kind of reworked. He, um, you know, changed words here, paragraphs there, but also he just changed the structure in the the initial draft of the Constitution. There were twenty three articles. He pared that down to seven, um, and so it's really yeah. He's the he's the one who wrote it, and so when we go back as Americans are wont to do, to parse over the fine details of the document. You know, why is this word used? Why is this semicolon here, right? We have Morris to, to thank or to blame, uh, depending on your point of view, for, for the most of the details of the document. So yeah, Madison's the most common answer, or just, well, it was a group effort. Did it have a, an author at all? Um, were the the two most common answers I I received. Right, and and just you know, and, and you and you've done a lot of this, like in, in, in previous conversations, we've talked about your other book, uh, you know, where you're you're talking about just like the founders in general, and like you know, how, you know how how they, they you know participate with each other in a lot of different political theory and thinking. Um, but you, you so you, you deal with a lot of this kind of stuff, and I, I'm wondering, just in your opinion, as as you've gone through many subjects, either similarly or related to this idea of who's credited to what and what really happened. In certain points of history, do you think the whole idea of the hero with a quill pen is sort of damaging to our idea of how some of history's most important political documents come to fruition? Like, you know, today we're going to talk about how Morris himself, of course, was the man who actually penned the uh, the Constitution. This is, of course, very important. But just this idea that in some ways, like you hear about this with Jefferson and the Declaration of Independence, like sometimes the mythology is one man sat alone on a ranch and thought deeply into the night and wrote all this through. Like, is this sort of like fairy tale version of a lot of the way these documents come to be um, sort of a little damaging in the way we think about this stuff? Maybe. I mean, you you see the appeal, right? As you say, it, it seems like a, a, almost a heroic thing that, wow, Jefferson came up with these ideas. I mean, with Jefferson, it's even more um, questionable, I think, insofar as, you know, he not that he's guilty of plagiarism or anything, but a lot of the stuff that, that he put into the Declaration of Independence had been part of the Virginia Declaration of Rights written by George Mason just a few weeks earlier. Right. And so it really wasn't Madison or, or sorry, Jefferson um, doing it on its own. He's he's very much drawing on um, other other sources. So yeah, I mean it is sometimes a, a falsification, but it's yeah, it's a tempting one. <laughs> right. Fair enough. So now let's, as I was saying, get into what or I should say who this book is all about one uh, Governor or Gouverneur Morris. Um, if, if you would uh, please go through some biographical details as your book does before we talk about some other more uh, political oriented in the Constitution itself, I think that would be excellent. I mean, honestly, take as long as you want because I find this so fascinating. We obviously can't recite the whole book here, but give us the high level rundown. Let's trace his life a bit before and maybe bring us up to the point where the Constitution was actually happening. Who was this man, Dennis? Why is it, as you say, that his life if it were a movie, would be rated R. I think that's a really good teaser. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's dangerous saying take as long as I want because <laughs> I, I, I get excited talking about his life because it is such a colorful and eventful life. Um, Noah Feldman said in his, his biography of James Madison that Morris may have been the most colorful individual in all of North America at the time of the founding. And frankly, that sounds about right to me. He was this peg-legged ladies man with a really wicked sardonic sense of humor he's without question one of the funniest of the founders um maybe that's not saying all that much they were on the whole uh, an unusually serious lot i think benjamin franklin's probably the only real rival for that title but uh, for for funniest founder but he um he's a funny guy um so he had a, i mentioned he had a wooden leg he lost his leg or he had his leg amputated when he was 28 as a result of a bad carriage accident. Although there were always rumors throughout his life that he'd in fact shattered the leg jumping out a bedroom window in order to escape <laughs> the, the wrath of an ill-timed husband. Um, 
and this, you know, his peg leg doesn't seem to have dampened his his appeal to women. At least he he went on to en- engage in a long string of of amorous adventures across two continents. Yes. Um, no, no easy I'll, feat since, for the time, right? I mean, if you have a peg leg at that time and you're still a ladies' man, I mean, there's something yeah. to be said for that. <laughs> yeah. Yes, um, but okay, let, let, I'll, I'll back up and, and maybe start from the beginning. So he's originally from New York. Um, he came from a wealthy family that owned most of the southwest part of what's now the Bronx. Uh, but his father died when he was, I think it was 10. And most of the inheritance went to his older half-siblings from his his father's first wife. And so he was left to mostly um, kind of make his own way in the world. He has this almost quasi-aristocratic lineage, but he, he, he had to kind of make his own way. And he did that very well. He was always very good at making money. Um, he worked as a lawyer, especially Especially through land speculation, he, he became quite quite wealthy. Um, he came up career-wise. He came up as so many of the founders did through revolutionary politics. Um, he helped to put eventually to push New York uh, to join the independence movement. He's part of the state's uh, provincial congress. He was then also one of the three principal architects of the New York State Constitution uh, of 1777, along with two good friends of his, namely John Jay and Robert R. Livingston. Um, and so he had this kind of experience even before, you know, a, a decade before the Philadelphia Convention with convention writing. He, he helped write the New York Constitution. He then went on to become a delegate to the Continental Congress, um, where, among other things, he served on a committee whose job it was to oversee the Army's needs. And so he spent that terrible winter at Valley Forge. Uh, he got to know George Washington. Washington would go on to become a friend. And I don't think it's too strong to say, but would become Morris's hero, his lifelong political hero. Um, and there were an interesting pair, the, the Morris and Washington, right? Washington is known for his sort of dignified reserve and morris has this irrepressible boldness and rakishness that that um it's an interesting contrast but they seem to have gotten on on quite well um so while he's at the the uh, a member of the continental congress he also signed the articles of confederation which is of course america's first um inadequate stab at a national constitution um he saw its inadequacies from the get-go but he, he signed it on behalf of of new york um, he served for a time as the deputy superintendent of Congress, sorry, deputy superintendent of finance, um, where he helped to, uh, so here he worked along with another founder named Robert Morris, no relation to governor, um, but both Morris's, um, helped to de- develop a financial program that in some ways saved the revolution. Uh, they, they enabled the Congress to, to just barely keep the troops supplied and in the field and so forth. Um, and in this, uh, here's a fun bit of trivia for, for you and for your listeners. So it was in this role as Deputy Superintendent of Finance that Morris drew up a plan for a new national currency in which he proposed to use the word dollar after the what was then a pretty widely used Spanish dollar as the basic unit of currency. He also invented the word cent for one of the smaller hmm. coins. So we use, Americans use words chosen by Morris pretty much every day. He's the reason we have um, dollars and cents as the, the terms for our currency. Um, so he then, of course, attended the Constitutional Convention. Maybe I won't say a whole lot about that now because I think most of the rest of this podcast will be about <laughs> right. that. Yeah, good call. Um, I will say um, after the convention is closed, Alexander Hamilton urged him to contribute to the Federalist or the Federalist Papers. So it was initially supposed to be this trio of Hamilton, Morris, and John Jay. So they're all three kind of up and coming New Yorkers. They're all very good, 
friends. They were the ones who were supposed to write these, these what became these very famous essays in favor of the Constitution. Morris said no, and it was only after he declined that Hamilton turned to Madison. So that makes Madison, as, as one scholars put it, Madison became the most consequential backup choice in the whole history of political theory. Um, <laughs> his very famous essays on and the Federalists, um, which is a fa- you know, it's really to me fascinating to think how would the Federalist have been different if he had written for it instead of Madison. Um, I think you can say for certain that Morris would be far more famous today than than he currently is. Um, anyway, so he he uh, turns down Hamilton. He then goes on to become an important player in the second great revolution of the modern age, because in 1789, he goes to Paris. He eventually follows in the footsteps of Franklin and Jefferson, becomes the American minister to France. And so he's there from the beginning. He's there at the convening of the Estates General. Um, He's, in fact, the only foreign diplomat from any country who goes and stays in the country all the way through the terror, all the way through the, the the kind of depths of the revolution. And this was something that he more or less foresaw. He, he's quite skeptical about the revolution from the very get-go, even before, say, Edmund Burke, who's known for his prescience right. on this. Um, he he's warns about the chaos that the revolutionaries are going to unleash, and, and those warnings were, I think, very much borne out. Um, he kept a diary then. Um, he wrote back letters to President Washington, Secretary of State Jefferson. Um, they're, they're offer really fascinating insight into the revolution. They're often quite funny. Um, that's, a, you know, another big important episode of, of his life. Um, and I think he did a, you know, the consensus seems to be that he did a good job, if not maybe even heroic job of, um, sort of navigating the, the, uh, revolving door of factions that headed the French government, right? That each is more bloody and <laughs> extreme and violent than the last. And he does what he can to just kind of stay on decent terms with all of them, protect American citizens from arbitrary arrest, protect American commerce. Um, when things were at their worst, he he hid people in his apartment to to save them from the guillotine. Um, so he, he's, a, again, a big uh, contributor to not just the American Revolution, but also the French Revolution. Um, after his ministry ends, he travels around Europe for a few more years, um, eventually made his way back to the U.S. He served the second half of a senatorial term. So he was a, a federal, Federalist senator from New York for three years, um, from 1800 to 1803, I, if my memory is serving. Um, so this is a, a pretty important period. This is when the Republicans, Jeffersonian Republicans, take power. The Capitol moves to Washington, D.C., um, and he's there for those events. Um he was there. Oh, also the duel. So after the famous duel between Hamilton and Aaron Burr, Morris is the one who sits by Hamilton's side at his deathbed. Morris is the one that gives Hamilton's official eulogy at the request of his wife, Eliza. So Eliza Hamilton says to Morris after Hamilton dies, says, Morris, you're the best friend he had in the world. And not that that's enough to give him even a bit part in the musical. Um, that right. he, he makes zero appearance in the Broadway musical, which is a, a huge shame, right? Having right. the idea of having this peg-legged rake dancing around on this stage—I don't know—it's a real mi- missed opportunity. Mi- I was about to say and, missed yes, opportunity from a, from even just a pure show business perspective. Yes, for sure. Um, so that, that's you know I, I, Hamilton's very entertaining and stuff, but since I've gotten into the Morris, I have that big big bone to pick <laughs> with Lin Manuel. Um, okay, so anyway, he late in life he undertook two more big projects. He helped to lead a commission that, uh, that that planned the grid layout of Manhattan, the, the city streets of Manhattan. And he also helped to lead a commission that planned the Erie Canal. So these two big projects. Um, he also 
Um, during his very last years, he's a sort of um, elder statesman of the Federalist Party. And strangely or, or surprisingly, I think, to many people, he grew so disenchanted with the ascendancy of the Republicans, with the War of 1812 and so on, that he supported the secession of New York and New England from the Union. Um, he, he was basically became a northern secessionist. So maybe I can talk more about that later. Um, I'll, I'll try to, I know I've been going on a long time. I'll, let me say just two more things. Um, on the more personal side of things, he finally, I think it was at age 57, quite late in life, he became the last of the, the founders to marry. He married a woman named Nancy Randolph, who um, was a sort of fallen aristocrat. She was more than two decades his junior. She was then serving as his housekeeper at the time. She had early in her, her life been accused of conspiring to murder her own newborn baby father by her brother-in-law, which is a long story I won't recount. Um, so they had uh, Morris and, and Nancy had a son together, although Morris died before he even turned four. So he didn't really get to see his son grow up. Um, and then I have to say something about his death, <laughs> which is rather grisly. Um, you know, I, I hesitate to say this. I, no, I think this go is ahead. Better, I, I know what you're about to say because I read it, but but uh, full permission here on the podcast. Uh, okay, so it's the family podcast. So, I, <laughs> I, I, uh, but he um, Morris seems to have frequently suffered from painful blockages of his urinary tract. Maybe this was a result of venereal disease. We're not sure. Um, but when he's 64, he tried using a whalebone to remove the blockage, and that killed him. He died from the the resulting lacerations. So. To your audience, my apologies for giving you that that mental image to to carry around with you. Who could could have could have could have been like sort of a an idea as well to be innovative in the field of medicine too to tack on at the end of his life there. Who knows, right? So an interesting man to the very last moment is the point there, I suppose, right? Yes. No. He everything he did was colorful. Even even his death was colorful. Yes. yes. And and I and I on the musical point there, I would I would definitely go see Morris the musical. Absolutely. By the way. Yeah. So, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Um, <laughs> one thing before we jump into a few of the points specifically on on the Constitution and bringing us back to that and his penning of it. One thing I like that you've, and we've talked about this in previous conversations together, one thing I really like about your work is you often don't in, in your books and in your writing just talk about, oh, I found this, this is what happened, isn't this interesting? You also spend nice chunks of time on what uh, your subject's contemporaries uh, say about them. Nice long block quotes, things like that. Uh, you've, you've touched on a few of his contemporaries and their opinion of him as you went along there, but I just thought to throw it back to you and say, are there any others that come to mind, like sort of the big names that most of us do know and the kinds of things they had to say about Morris? Just a few examples, obviously, not not quizzing you to cite them verbatim, but just to give more of that flavor of, you know, it's not just you and I sitting here thinks this guy's interesting. A lot of his uh, contemporaries had some great things to say about him. And even if they seem to have a negative opinion or let's say an ambivalent one, they still respected him to some degree. So I, so I found that very interesting. Yes. So all of his, you know, the the big names among the founders, the, the ones who are, who are most revered today, all revered him. So um, George Washington called him a man of first rate abilities, right? He made him the his his um, minister to France. Um, Hamilton, Jefferson, Madison all called him a genius. Jefferson and Madison are, when they say this, are quite bitter political opponents of of. Uh, um, of Morris, Jefferson called him at one point a high-flying monarchy man, and yet when he died, he said uh, something like, "Genius has lost in him one of its distinguished subjects," or, or something. I, I love that insult, by the way. That's like the most G-rated. Like I, I'm stealing that now. Like if I want to insult somebody, you're a high-flying monarchy, high monarchy man. Yes, yes that's yes. perfect. <laughs> well, they, 
Um, Morris, in turn, said one of my favorite little lines. So Morris has a, a um, starting when he was in France, he kept a diary. And sometimes it's very detailed and colorful. And sometimes it's very, you know, just kind of the weather, the way, the way that some 18th century figures do. But when he was in, uh, uh, in the Senate, he um, Jefferson was president at the time, and he he records having gone to a, a, a dinner with Jefferson. And his only comment in in the the in the journal about uh, his interaction with Jefferson at the dinner is he says uh, of Jefferson, he is utopia quite right. That <laughs> <laughs> Jefferson has this utopia, you know, utopian character to his thinking. So that yeah, they they have kind of good put downs of of one another uh, <laughs> at the time. Yes, but that, uh, the, one other thing I'll say is. Theodore Roosevelt, President Theodore Roosevelt, wrote an entire biography of Morris in uh, you know earlier in his life, well before he was president, where where he says very laudatory things of him as well. So he was he was seen as this very important figure and a genius and so on during his time, which again makes it all the more shocking that he's just totally forgotten today. And on the Theodore Roosevelt point, um, like not just laudatory, but I believe he also went as far as to say either the most or one of the most important or statesmen, something along those lines. Obviously, you don't have the quote in front of me, but it was sort of like an ultimate conclusion that this, this man is extremely important. Yeah, that there are few people to whom this country owes more or something of the sort. Right. Yeah, no, it's very interesting. All right. Well, with that as, as amazing background for the first kick of our conversation, Dennis, um, I kind of want to now start more getting into what the plan of the book was and the things you explored into it. One thing I like that you put right in the introduction of the book is something um, you know, you're quoting someone else as uh, interpretation and basically conclusion of Morris. And, and I'll read it here. It's a little long, but I think it's a great way to kick you off on, on the next point of the conversation here. So it, it is said, and, and you'll probably get into the, the background of this and all that in a second by another, that Morris wrote the constitution quote unquote only in the literal and limited sense that he led a committee on style that turned the convention's decisions into an official document on the substance of the constitution morris contributed precious little in the debates he spoke often but to scant or negative effect preferring provocative rhetoric over meaningful compromise truth be told he was a political lightweight a charming disappointment and we can summarize that whole paragraph basically saying someone here is saying that he was essentially a useless blowhard that was basically a note taker. I mean, that's that's if one were to believe that right off the bat before reading your book, Dennis, you have an interesting hole to climb out of and establish this man is actually important. So how how did you go about this investigation? I'm, I'm assuming that wasn't the first quote you read ever about Morris himself. But uh, but for someone kind of going from that point, what are the kinds of things that you set out to explore to establish that this man actually is all the things that his contemporaries had said rather than this person I just quoted here? Right. So I guess I'll name him. So the, 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 this Alan Taylor, who's really one of today's finest historians. I, I, I didn't even mention his, uh, his, of course, cited in my my notes. I didn't mention his name in the text because I don't, you know, I, I shudder to take on Alan Taylor, who's, who's twice the historian <laughs> I'll, I'll ever be. Um, but yeah, I think that that um, read of Morris is wrong, that he just was this, you know, unimportant blowhard who... Um, and, you know, he did have something of a reputation for being um, too controversial and too, um, uh, yeah, kind of too in your face at the Philadelphia Convention, partly because, and I hope we'll have time to get into this, he was easily the staunchest critic of slavery at the convention. He did not hesitate to call a spade a spade when it came to, to slavery, and that, you know, was off-putting to many of the, especially the Southern delegates. But, you know, again, so we have the... the uh, 
testimony of his most illustrious contemporaries, Washington, Jefferson, Madison, et cetera, Hamilton. Um, he also, you know, we just have to read Madison's notes of the Philadelphia Convention. Morris is basically the dominant figure. He speaks more often at the convention than any other delegate. He proposed more motions than any other delegate. He had more motions accepted than any other delegate. Um, his, you know, whenever he speaks, you know, he is, I mean, the, the truth and the, the kind of blowhard, he is very blunt. He's very provocative. The, his comments are little kind of set pieces often all but leap off the page at you when you read through Madison's notes. Um, and so he is, he also, I guess I should say, served on um, a number of the important committees. The, the committees really did a lot of the important work that summer. Um, so he's just everywhere that summer. He's, he's just inv involved in, in so much. Um, he's um, one of the two chief architects of the presidency as we know it, along with James Wilson. Um, as I say, he's far and away the, the staunchest slavery of sorry, staunchest critic of slavery at the convention. And again, most of all, he does write the constitution itself. Um, the, the, uh, um, I think every bit as much as Jefferson wrote the, the Declaration of Independence. Um, he, I talked earlier about how he, he kind of consolidated things. He, he changed a lot of the, the um, actual text of the, the document. He also wrote the famous preamble basically from scratch. This is the Constitution's ringing statement of purpose, all the stuff about forming a more perfect union and establishing justice and assuring domestic tranquility and the like. Right, That's all him, um, which is sort of, I say in the book, kind of ironic that the Constitution's preamble has become one of the most celebrated sentences in the annals of democracy. And so it's sort of ironic that it came from this guy who has somewhat elitist inclinations and who's all but forgotten today. Um, and so, yeah, he's the chief author of this text, this, you know, one of the most important texts in, in world history. And so there's a little, uh, it's maybe a little bit silly. I quote a couple of, of um other historians who who suggest that maybe he deserves the title father of the Constitution at least as much as Madison does. Mm. Um, so this uh, Richard Brookheiser, who wrote a biography of Morris, maybe predictably says this, but also Joseph Ellis, who's maybe the most popular writer today on on the founding, um, says this as well, that he deserves that title at least as much as, as Madison does. So yeah, but in some ways, the whole burden of the book is to show that he's Morris, that is, is really crucial in, in the formation of the constitution and not just this, you know, uh, guy who, who wrote, wrote some things down at the end that had already been decided anyway. Right. And we're just about to, uh, jump into exactly why that's the case as Dennis was describing there, but it, it actually, that part of the conversation takes us actually to an excellent point to take a break. So we're going to do that right now. Everyone you're listening to the curious task. I'm speaking with Dennis Rasmussen today. Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Joe Aragona, Janet Bufton, and Peter Jaworski. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Dennis Rasmussen today. So, Dennis, I think the first half was great. We provided a lot of context for the rest of our conversation today. Um, we're basically picking right back up where we left off, so I won't won't delay. 
let's just get into the kinds of things now that the reader will learn about uh, Governor Morris in detail uh, when they uh, get into the different pillars of your book. Now, I'll just like kind of trace a quick overview of the book itself right now before I ask you some specific questions, because we won't be able to cover everything, of course, in our last half here. But, you know, you have a chapter on Morris himself and how he participated uh, at the convention. There's a chapter on federalism, the Senate, the House of Representatives. Um, you know, there's one chapter titled A Reluctant Architect of the Electoral College, which is obviously about presidential selection. The presidency itself was discussed, the judiciary, slavery, which you made a point of saying you really want to get to. So I'll make sure to push us there if we go a little too long. That's area all, all that to say there's a lot of things here that you know clearly um governor morris touched on or uh, you know at, at the very least and at the very most influenced or had a large uh, hand in participating in and then of course ultimately penning into the constitution so there's a lot here um i'd like to just start with the first thing first and just see how where that naturally takes us uh you've already mentioned it so i think it's a good place uh, to get into we have a hit one historian sort of saying that this man is nothing more than really a glorified note taker if you hold him to high praise but you spend a chapter talking about what that convention was really like and what what morris had done there so why don't we start at that point i guess because in, in my mind and, and you could tell me if you disagree and if you'd like to start somewhere else but i think if we're going to get to the point of actually penning the constitution maybe the convention's a nice place to start Sure. So, I mean, I, I guess I've already kind of said he, he's everywhere. He, he's, in, uh, he's a member of all these committees. He speaks so often and, and um, he writes it up at the end. So the, uh, one of the delegates named William Pierce from Georgia recorded these very vivid descriptions of his fellow delegates in his diary. And I'll just read his description of Morris, which I d- do think um, uh, captures something of, of what he must have been like in, in, during that summer in Philadelphia. So uh, Pierce writes, quote, Mr. Governor Morris is one of those geniuses in whom every species of talents combine to render him conspicuous and flourishing in public debate. He winds through all the mazes of rhetoric and throws throws around him such a glare that he charms, captivates, and leads away the senses of all who hear him. With an infinite stretch of fancy, he brings to view things when he is engaged in deep argumentation that render all the labor of reasoning easy and pleasing. But, and here's the criticism that was often leveled against Morris, he says, but with all these powers, he is fickle and inconstant, never pursuing one train of thinking, nor ever regular. He has gone through a very extensive course of reading and is acquainted with all the sciences. No man has more wit, nor can anyone gauge the attention more than Mr. Morris. So he is, again, he's a very funny guy. There are not very moments of, uh, very many moments of levity that come out in, let's say, Madison's notes. They almost all come from Morris. Um, so he he's um, he's an important figure. He's well known to, he's very young still at this point. He's still in his early 30s, but he's, he's well known to a lot of the important figures. And he, um, yeah, I don't know if you want to start transitioning to, to the things he argued for, but he's a- Yeah, absolutely. A Let's do that now. Na- Okay, great. So he, he's a staunch nationalist, nationalist, not in the sense of, you know, kind of America first in the international realm, but nationalist in the sense of wanting to, to centralize power, right, to, to augment the power of the national government at the expense of the states. He probably, you know, he doesn't go so far as Hamilton. I think Hamilton would have just wiped the states off the map if, if he could have, and, and right. Morris didn't want to go quite that far. But he is, I, I suggest, maybe the most passionate nationalist at the convention, Um where he, because remember, at this time the states were still under the Articles of Confederation. They're the, still the real sovereign powers in America, and that's something that Morris wants to change. He he sees the state governments as immensely problematic. He think 
thinks that, that they too frequently stand in the way of the national interest. And so he says, you know, we need to think about this as if we're Americans. He, he says that too often the other delegates seem like they were there to truck and bargain for their particular states. We should think of ourselves not as representatives of New Jersey or South Carolina or whatever, but representatives of America. Um, and so he, he, this is something he, he was constantly pushing us for them to th take a much more national view of things rather than thinking about their own uh, their own particular states. Um, he wanted to minimize the power of the states and to augment the power of the national government whenever possible. And he's one of the most powerful voices on that, that end of things. Right. And as uh, as we continue through the book here, and again, I know this is like unfair to do this type of summary thing. And as, as always, when we talk about any guest on here with a book or a work that's longer than sort of an essay itself, I always encourage people, folks, go, go look up this book, go uh, go buy it, go read it however you can. It, it, it's excellent. There's obviously way more detail in here that we could ever cover. So, so what are the other kinds of things that someone will um, find out, I guess, Dennis, is the best way to put this so we don't um, unfairly put you in a position to sort of explain everything really. You know, the, the, the upcoming chapters, federalism, the Senate, the House of Representatives, um, and then, you know, uh, then the Electoral College, those sort of make up some key components here of uh, what the Constitution sort of lays out. As far as Morris is concerned, what are the kinds of things you're exploring in these chapters? Good. Okay. So that, yeah, you're right. That is a lot of ground and it's a lot of detail. So the book, you know, the book is really tries to bring out you know, not, not everything, but all the, the big points he made at the Philadelphia Convention and his vision for the what the government would be. And so I do go through, you know, each branch and, and often each part of each branch and, and talk about what he says. I'll just say a few things about the maybe the highlights or the more interesting parts. So he, um, when it comes to Congress, let, let me just focus on the Senate because there his views are sort of um, very counterintuitive and interesting. He, he advocates that the Senate should be uh, a body made up of exclusively wealthy individuals who would be chosen by the president to serve for life without pay. And ironically enough, or strangely enough, he does this because he thinks it's going to serve to check the political power of the rich. <laughs> so, <laughs> which is strange. Okay, so why in the world would that be? Um, so first of all, to, just to back up, he thought the main purpose of the Senate was to check what he called the, uh, I don't remember the exact terms, but I think the precipitation and excesses of the house or something like that. Basically what he envisioned would be the, the turbulent populism of the house of representatives or the more, you know, uh, you know, the part of the, the Congress that's more closely connected to the people. Right. And he thought that this kind of Senate made up of this wealthy elite serving for life, they, they'd be in the best position to check the house because right. If they're rich, then they want to protect private property. If they have these lifetime appointments, they have the independence, the security to stand up to the house. Um, and this was something, by the way, I guess I should say um, when you go through Madison's notes, a lot of times we, we picture the constitution as just, well, it was bound to end up the way it did. There's really a lot of different ideas on the table. There were quite a number of delegates who argued for something like this, for a kind of quasi-aristocratic body with lifetime appointments. Um, right. The others who advocated this did so because they just trusted wealthy elites more than the common people. Morris, interestingly, wanted this precisely because he didn't trust them. He constantly says the rich are corrupt, they're power hungry, they're all too eager to oppress the poor. Which, again, makes it all the more curious. Then why does he want to basically hand the Senate over to these, these corrupt people? And the basic argument was the rich are actually going to be easier to restrain if they're isolated, confined to the Senate. 
right? If they're confined there, the people and the representatives in the House are going to, you know, watch them like a hawk, scrutinize their every move. They'll always be resistant to any, you know, oppressive measures that they try to pass. And so he's trying to pit ambition against ambition, to use, you know, Madison's famous dictum from, from Federalist 51. Right. This is actually sort of what, like what John Adams advocates, too, in, on the state level. Is he just says, we, we want to put the rich, the well-born in the Senate, and it's a sort of ostracizing, like we're somehow ostracizing them into the Senate. Um, I don't like, I, I'm not, I wouldn't want to try to reclaim this view today. I think it, it has its problems. Um, and I call attention to some of them in the book. Um, but it is an interesting argument. And it is, you know, he is, I guess, the only thing I'd say in his defense is, he's trying to find some way to limit the inordinate influence of the rich on the political process. You know, that's a problem we still haven't really solved <laughs> right. completely in the United States. So, you know, he sees that it's going to be a problem. And so maybe that's a, a testament to his kind of uh, his foresight. Um, so I'll leave it there on the Senate. I, I guess uh, rather than say something about the House and, and take too much of our time, maybe I'll go on to the presidency because here um, – I, I mentioned before, he's one of the two chief architects of the presidency as we know it, and one of the two chief architects of the Electoral College, the way we elect the president as we know it, along with James Wilson. Um, he, um, and it was the two of them really who got the, so, sorry, let me back up. Yep. So the Electoral College was we think of it today as, oh, we have this very convoluted system, and that's uh, sort of alternative to a direct vote of the people. Morris would have preferred a direct vote of the people, but there's no way he could have gotten it. No, Almost no one else at the convention other than Wilson was on board with that. The vast majority of the delegates wanted Congress to choose the president. Um, I, I don't think many people today realize just how close the convention came to doing that. All but a handful of days, the entire summer, the plan on the table, Congress would have chosen the president, which, of course, would have gone a long way toward making the American government a parliamentary rather than a presidential system right. in, in contemporary terms. Um, and again, this almost for sure would have prevailed had it not been for Morris and Wilson constantly objecting to it. His objections, Morris had two main problems with this idea of congressional selection. First, that the outcome would be determined by a kind of partisan, factional infighting. He said it would be something like the election of a pope by a conclave of cardinals. Uh, that, that you know there'd just be this, this you know partisan right. thing to, to choose the president, and also that it would represent the or sorry, it would render the the, the president subservient to Congress and, and thereby undermine the system of checks and balances. So again, what he preferred, what he would have wanted, was direct popular election of the president. But most of other delegates found that to be preposterous. So they ended up coming up with the, the Electoral College as basically the closest approximation to popular election that they could get. And using electors served, served to solve a number of problems with regard to the small states and especially the slave states that I won't go get into it because it's too, too complicated. Um, but again, I'll just reiterate, he, Morris is himself one of the two main architects of the Electoral College, but he sees it as a second best option. He would have prefer, preferred a direct vote by the people themselves. Um, he also did, you know, so that's for presidential, presidential selection. He also did everything that he could in the debates, within these committees, in his drafting of the Constitution. He did everything that he could to enhance the president's powers. Um, I think the presidency ended up being far stronger than it might have without his efforts. Hmm. Um, he, he would, I think, wanted it to be stronger still. He wanted um, the president to have especially appointment powers. He thought the president should be able to appoint 
cabinet officers and federal judges and Supreme Court justices, and again, remember, even senators unilaterally without congressional approval. So the, basically, the president would have been able to choose all the members of the, the government when there were openings, except the, the House of Representatives. Um, so I won't go through, uh, you know, I won't say too much more about his, you know, why he wanted the presidency so powerful. Um, me, yeah, well, I guess I'll say two words. Basically, he wanted the president to be able to stand up to Congress. Um, he expected Congress to be the pow most powerful and, and the most dangerous of the three branches and to be you know, dominated by these wealthy elites. Um, he also wanted to make the presidency so strong because he knew, as everyone knew perfectly well, that the first president was going to be his own hero, George Washington. Right. Right. Um, so he does. He didn't get anything or every single thing he wanted with regard to the presidency, but he got a great deal of what he wanted, much more so with, with yeah. Congress, that the Congress that emerged in the Constitution doesn't look all that much like what Morris wanted. The presidency is, is a lot closer. Right. That makes sense. And I think a lot of the folks at the time were sort of uh, not completely, but a lot of their thinking was at least influenced to some degree by the fact that, you know, when they're thinking of the presidency, they're thinking of having a, a George Washington sort of in that position and what that one might be nice to look at. But as we know, long term, we don't always have George Washington's in the presidency, right? Yes, that's the that's the problem. <laughs> yes. Um, and uh, and I did kick the can down the road on purpose here because you mentioned it specifically. So and then let's also get into, um, you know, uh, the topic of slavery, because he was at the convention itself. He was an outlier on this uh, sort of reminds me a bit of like a, a Thomas Paine sort of outlier of the time. So like, w what were his views on slavery? And, and, uh, you know, and I, I always want to emphasize when we get to this topic, like today, obviously, some of this stuff is really obvious, but it's really important not to understate how just how different these kinds of views would have been at the time right yes i mean he was definitely an outlier and this was you know this is his finest hour at the convention from today's perspective right uh, he he speaks more passionately and eloquently and so forth about the the evils of slavery than anyone else does he calls it a nefarious institution the curse of heaven on the states where it prevailed he has this very long speech of, of august 8th which I, I just pulled up um, i'm going to read a paragraph from it in a, in a minute um this has been called the first abolitionist speech in american public life, which I think is maybe a bit of an exaggeration, but there's some tr truth to it. Um, and as you suggest, this is all the re more remarkable when you think of his audience, right? Probably a couple dozen people sitting there in the room that he's talking to are themselves slaveholders. Um, and so he gives this speech, the, this remarkable speech, I, I reproduce it in the, the epilogue to the book. Um, he gives it in opposition to the three-fifths clause. So this is a clause that would counted the, the enslaved, three-fifths of the enslaved population toward representation in the house and also at least eventually the electoral college right and you know he says why are we counting enslaved people at all uh, according to any ratio right he, he asks them rhetorically are they men are these enslaved people men if they are then let's make them citizens and let them vote are they property well then why are we including them as property and no other property right it just doesn't make any sense and you know it, it didn't I, I don't think you know there, there was no good answer to this this was just a way to to augment the power, the political power of the slaveholding South, and one that, as he points out, would just encourage them to import still more enslaved people so they'd get still more political clout. Um, anyway, let me let me read the climax, I think, of his speech uh, in, in opposition to the, this clause. So Morris says, quote, The admission of slaves into the representation, when fairly explained, comes to this, that the inhabitant of Georgia or South Carolina who goes to the coast of Africa 
and in defiance of the most sacred laws of humanity, tears away his fellow creatures from their dearest connections and damns them to the most cruel bondage, shall have more votes in a government instituted for the protection of the rights of mankind than the citizen of Pennsylvania or New Jersey who views with laudable horror so nefarious a practice. And then Morris goes on to say that, that doing this, that giving the South this extra representation on behalf of the people whom they've enslaved would require, quote, a sacrifice of every principle of right, of every impulse of humanity. So this is, you know, perfect. Right? I mean, this is what you or I would want to say if we could go back there, right? right. It's, it's um, uh, you know, I, I say in the book that, that his... Um, he, he basically served as the fr framer's conscience on this issue, but as sometimes happened, the conscience was all, was all too often ignored, right? The, the three-fifths clause uh, was included over his fierce objection. So was the, the overseas slave trade, uh, the, the protection for the overseas slave trade until 1808, the fugitive slave clause, um, and so on. I'll just say one more thing. You know, obviously, uh, you know, I like this. It makes Morris look really good <laughs> um, in, in retrospect. I also think it makes many of the other founders look pretty bad in comparison, in the sense that historians are always telling us, well, we shouldn't judge these figures of the past on the basis of today's values, right? Which I guess is true, at least, you know, to some extent. But this speech of Morris's makes it harder for me to accept the idea that, you know, oh, the poor founders, they're mere creatures of their times. <laughs> right. They simply didn't know any better. They couldn't have known any better with regard to slavery. Well, Morris was one of them. And he knew better, and he told them so, right? Um, and it's, of course, it's true that he's a northerner, but he comes from a slaveholding family. His father held several dozen people in bondage, right? He, he, he's, you know, it's not that he, he had no um, personal stake in the issue, but he's clear-sighted enough about this that, um, again, he, so he fought against slavery way back in the New York State Constitutional Convention in 1777, when he's still, I, I think in his early 20s, I'd have to do the math, I think he's 25 years old then. Um, at this time, st slavery is still legal and practiced in all 13 states. Um, he does it again at the Philadelphia Convention. Um, and so, yes, this is, again, him at his, his kind of courageous best, his farsighted best. And and I think that that point is you know, very key that you just made. And that's why I want to just poke it again, because like, you know, is it important to understand, you know, key figures like other founding fathers when it comes to slavery or any other subject within the context of what was happening at the time and, you know, majority trends or whatever? Yes, context is very important. Otherwise, you're not understanding anything to do with history. But by the same token, to your point, on the other hand, it's also silly to go to the other extreme, which is basically just pretend everyone was under this sort of blinders type umbrella where there was no other thinking or thought on the topic beyond what, you know, um, Jefferson might have specifically thought about slavery, for example. So I think that that also is not only is that a lot of credit to Governor Morris, but it's also another lesson to show that this guy wasn't also tiptoeing around the subject as well. You have someone on record here going actually getting to the core of the contradiction of human rights meeting the uh, the institution of slavery. Right. Yes, absolutely. And it is. You know, to go back to tie this back toward the the beginning of our conversation, it makes it all the more remarkable that he's still all but forgotten today, right? In yep. an age when you know many people have become uncomfortable lauding, you know, Jefferson or Madison or Washington too unreservedly because they're obviously complicit in this this institution. You know, Morris would seem to jump out as all the more, uh, you know, uh, likable and and all the more ready to be, you know, all the more attractive. I guess is the word I'm looking for. Um, so yeah, it does kind of redouble that conundrum of of why when he's so so interesting and so influential and and whatever why he's been so widely widely forgotten. Right. 
And we're going to move into sort of like the final couple questions here before our time's up. Uh, obviously, we could spend a lot of time on, on everything we just talked about. We only traced it. And once again, I will encourage people to go check out this book. It's great. Um, and see more details for themselves. But when we take all of this stuff into consideration, Dennis, and the kinds of things we've talked about, now let's shift over to the actual penning of the Constitution itself. Why is it so important to understand someone like Morris and in all these dimensions as the person who penned the Constitution, again, as, as someone like this, who participated in the debates, who had specific opinions, rather than just someone essentially being a, a sort of summarizer at the end of the process? Like, like I guess another way to get at my question is, like, why is it important to understand that someone is coming from this perspective as they pen the Constitution, how that affects what's actually penned? Well, I mean, partly I think it's just fascinating, right? It's a, he's a fascinating guy, and it's fascinating that, that people don't know this. In terms of the the um, actual substance of the Constitution, so there is now a question. So the um, another guy who's very interested in, in Morris and who, who I'll put a plug in for, um, Bill Trainer, who's the the dean of Georgetown Law, published it's now maybe two years ago. Um, uh, a very big, you know, but maybe a hundred pages long, very long uh, law review article on Morris as. So my book focuses on most, mostly, you know, his arguments at the Philadelphia Convention. So what what, what was his, his constitutional vision, as I'm calling it? What, what what was his vision for what the American government should look like? Trainer's article focuses on the actual writing of the Constitution, and in particular, the question of whether Morris was, as he the the, the, the phrase he uses, is a dishonest scrivener. Meaning, did Morris, um, as the the drafter of the Constitution, did he introduce kind of subtle um, but substantive changes to what the delegates had agreed on over the course of the summer, um, changes that would try to further his own constitutional vision. And there were some accusations to that effect when he was alive during Morris's own lifetime. And in some letters, he kind of hints that, yes, maybe he did. Trainer very painstakingly goes through the evidence and he comes up with, I think it's 15 different um covert but substantive changes that that Morris introduced, some of which went, went on to become important, especially early on in the 19th century, that Federalists like Hamilton would draw on these very passages when, when they're trying to fight for their kind of expansive Federalist reading of the Constitution during the, the early years of the Republic. Um, so it's really, th that material is very hard to discuss in a podcast type format. It's very, right. very textual, textually based and, um, and, and very painstaking, you, you know. Um, but but I encourage you to look at the at uh, Bill Trainer's law review article on this this subject if you're interested. It's is yeah. you know uh, very interesting. Yeah, and, and you know the thing is sometimes some people might, as you said, the stuff is you know sometimes painstaking, and we have to get into the text, and it's, it's sort of a different type of discussion. And and when sometimes that's said because it's completely true, but some people think, oh, okay, so now it's it really isn't the substantive stuff. We're really talking about getting into a word here and there. But like I think it's very important to emphasize how a word here and there can change the entire lexicon of a country or a culture or even the way people think about a certain school of thought. I mean, like I'm thinking of my understanding is there was like in the Declaration of Independence in one draft, it was floated that, you know, they're holding these truths to be sacred rather than self-evident. I mean, like that that's a huge change if you think about just the way we now look at American thought uh, if one word or another were to happen there. So this stuff is quite key. So if Morris did have this kind of effect on the Constitution in certain places, these are crucial points. 
Yes. No. I mean, you know, ask a constitutional lawyer. The each word matters. Each word matters a lot. Yes. Right. And, so, <laughs> and yeah, ask other lawyers in some court case. Sometimes each word matters too much. But you know, it's like it's, yeah. it's one way or not. No, exactly. That's exactly right. Um, and, and you know, I think you touched on it a few times. But before we move to the formal wrap up here, um. You know, I think you've done a very good job at sort of saying, you know, so it's curious as to why he's so underrepresented in discussions and you were doing a very good job being more more of a hist- historian that way and raising questions rather than saying you have all the answers. But I'm going to sort of put you on the spot here and just I, I really want your your personal opinion on, or, or even gut feeling. We'll let you off the hook with that on, on what some of the reasons you might think he, he is truly underrepresented, because by, by all accounts and, and I'll throw my vote behind you as well, that I think um, this is obviously a story that. I thought was, you know, ridiculous that not more people know about and this person as as a figure. Um, so, so you know, why do you think there's sort of this underrepresentation or, or this missing link in him being on that metaphorical quote unquote, quote, Mount Rushmore of founders, if you will? Yeah, so, so I... I um talk about this a little bit in the introduction of the book and i go through you know morris has this uh, a few admirers a handful of, <laughs> of us who, who are um, very interested in um georgetown law but where again bill trainer has hosted a, a conference on morris a couple years ago where you know we all got together and, and to meet each other and <laughs> that was great and so the, the, these handful of people who who uh, like me, admire Morris, or, or at least think that he, he's a much more important figure than he's giving credit for, and, and wish more people knew about him. Have often put forward explanations for you know this. Maybe this is why he's so um, so little known. And I, you know, I don't end up buying any of them, at least not in isolation. So um, I'll just go through a, a, a couple of them. So one common suggestion is that well, he's. He's sort of an elitist, right? The, I talked about his, his vision of the Senate. He says it's for the sake of checking the rich, but still he's saying, you know, the rich should have lifetime appointments in the Senate. He has all these criticisms of unfettered democracy. Maybe this kind of elitist sensibility is so offensive to us that, you know, uh, present day Americans could never embrace him as one of the, 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 the nation's key founders. I do think, you know, his elitism is often overstated or misunderstood. Um, but even more, I think a whiff of this, of this kind of uh, political iconoclasm, can just as often be as alluring as off-putting. You think of Hamilton, right? right. Hamilton is obviously a core member of the, the founding pantheon. He is second to none in his misgivings about popular self-rule. So that can't be the whole uh, uh, reason. He also his, you know, I talked about how he's a ladies' man, this somewhat licentious lifestyle. Maybe this, he doesn't have the the or a gravitas that we expect from our, our, our venerable founders. And that is maybe one reason why he was sometimes um, sort of disdained by, by people in der, during his lifetime. But I don't know that that's still true. You might think that a, a predilection for fun and sex and money would be, you know, maybe attractive in our own age, right? right. Um, Benjamin Franklin, you know, has his own fun-loving, amorous side, and, and you know, that hasn't hurt his, his eminence any. Um, he also, and this, you know, I think maybe now we're starting to get more, more to it. He never wrote some big substantial work for scholars to pour over like the Federalist or, or, you know, Jefferson's notes on the state of Virginia or you know, nothing like that. Um, I guess Washington didn't either, but, um, and, and, you know, Morris did write plenty as I hope my book shows there's, there's plenty there to draw on, but he, there is no like big, you know, text that, that political theorists can, can 
chew over in the same way. And of course, he never held his as high of an office under the Constitution as the other founders did. He was never president or fe- treasury secretary or anything like that. Right. He was minister to France and senator, and that's not nothing. But um, And I guess the other thing I'd say, I, I think Jefferson would be widely remembered today, even if he had merely only written the Declaration of Independence, right? That is to say, if he had never become president, whereas... Well, a good test on that, sorry to interrupt, a good a good test on that is some people, like when they have very, you know, superficial American history knowledge, no problem if they do, but they just, that's what they know Jefferson for. They just sure. kind of absorb that by osmosis, right? Right. And, and so, and again, so the obvious analogy here is, you know, why has Morris's pending of the Constitution not put him on that, that kind of... Um, level. So I don't know. I mean, again, maybe it's some kind of combination of these factors or, or maybe it's just the, the vagaries of fortune. But as I say, it is a puzzle and it's made all the more confounding by the way that he's this this staunch critic of slavery, which you might think would would um, bring him to the forefront of today's uh, you know, debates. Yeah. I mean, political theorists would love that conclusion. Number one, it's complicated. And number two, it's probably <laughs> tons of factors that we can talk about at, like, for a long yeah, period yeah. of time. So that's excellent. Um, D- Dennis, I'm going to move us to our formal wrap up here. I think this conversation was great and uh, we're about out of time here. So uh, as you know, in each episode, I want to make sure the guest ultimately has the last word to bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question. So I'm going to ask you um, the our, basically what is our official and formal last question here. What do you hope are ultimately the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on who really wrote the American Constitu- Constitution and, and who Governor Morris himself was and why he was important? In other words, if you wanted someone listening to us here to take away just one or two or a few things, if anything, uh, other than the fact that Hamilton lost a very interesting character opportunity, <laughs> what would the <laughs> takeaways be? Um. Yeah, so I guess I'd just say that, you know, the person who wrote the Constitution isn't who you probably thought. It's not James Madison, that there is a single figure who wrote it, who might be the most important of the founders that people, uh, few people have ever heard of, and um, almost certainly the most interesting of the founders, period. And and so people should spend more time uh, on Morris, and he should be in the, in our founding pantheon, along with you know Franklin, Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Madison, Hamilton, the, the big six. We sh- we should turn it into a big seven, and Morris should be be up, be up with the others. Excellent. I think that that's a great place to leave it. Dennis Rasmussen, as always, it was great to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much for the chat today. Thanks, Alex. I appreciate it. Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Curious Task.